Queens, our guest today is a courageous and brave woman who spent the better part of her childhood in a cult called the Move of God. Later in life, she received a BA in International Studies and a Master's in Public Relations from Portland State University. Over the course of this episode, she recounted her early life before and during her time in the Move of God and the pain and heartache associated with life inside a controlling religious cult. I am so grateful she had the courage and compassion to share her story with me. Here is my friend, Lisa Kendall. So go go ahead and I guess just take it from, from the beginning. What What led you and your family into this path in the involvement with Move of God? The Move of God. The Sam move Fife's God. Move of God. Okay. Not to be confused with Move on the East Coast. There's different factions? No, it's a completely different cult. Okay. There are over 4,000 groups thought to be cults in the U.S. That, and experts think it's really more like 5,000. It's much more common than people think, the experience. And that's part of why I'm here, because um, we really need to raise awareness about the harm done to not just the people in cults, but to society. People from cults are very expensive, and everyone pays Everybody pays in a wide, honestly, in terms of crime, you know, government assistance, kids in foster care. So it's something that we need to better understand and address in the United States. Well, what what uh, words are used to define a cult? How do these 5,000 groups get that status versus the Catholic Church? That's a common question. Well, if, if you go to a Catholic Church, um, they don't keep you from reading books, newspapers, watching television. They don't dictate what you wear. Um, I, I mean, there, if you, it, in most cults, if you don't follow the rules, you're shunned or looked down on or, or excluded. Um, and the main, one of the main things we look at is exploitation. So that's why um, people who work in the cult awareness arena rarely say cult, we say groups or coercive groups um, for a number of reasons. But um, for one thing, I think it helps people better understand um, the cultic experience, calling it a coercive group or um, a high demand group. Um, In the cult I grew up in, Sam Fife's Move of God, my mother joined when I was nine years old, and she um, had a very difficult life. I don't think she would have ever joined a cult if she had not been victimized in so many ways. Um, I was conceived through rape, and that ruined my mother's life. She was an 18-year-old virgin who was raped by her boss, um, something I'd barely overheard once or twice in my life. I didn't really know about until I asked my bio father if it was true when I was 27. He told me it was true. He raped my mother. My grandmother threw her out of the house for being a whore. So all of her life, she struggled with being a woman of ill repute. Mm-hmm. And that's how she always put it. It was very hard for her, that stigma. Being a, a woman with a, an unwanted child in the 60s and, um, you know, that thing people say, nobody wants what nobody wants. If, you know, if you've got a boyfriend, you're more desirable, for instance, a lot of people would say about dating. Sure. So nobody wants what nobody wants. Nobody wanted me at all. So there was no baby shower. There were no gifts. 
There was no good wishes at all. And um, this story is much more tragic than that. As much as I can tell, it's hard for you to hear this. Um, my mother was then raped and had my youngest sister, Mindy. So she oh, happened God. again. Um, and that story I knew and grew up with. The thing that was great for me about that is my mother spent six months in the hospital. And so I was cared for by loving people, which I didn't even know anything about until I was 26. I was at a funeral for a relative, and this woman came up to me and said, you look so beautiful. And she said, I'm sorry I couldn't keep you. I, she said, we were just newly married. And that woman was so cut. It was the first time anybody ever looked at me with any kind of familial love. And it was amazing. I, and I wanted to find her and talk to her about that afterward, but I couldn't figure out who she was. She was the one that took care of you while your mom was in, in the hospital? Yeah, apparently uh, my cousin, who I always called an uncle because he was older, he um, is a very wealthy man, very well-known man in Portland. And he went with, I'm presuming his sister, my um, my mother's cousin, and they took her to the hospital and they um, took me to this woman in their church. And I found out about that when I asked my cousin uncle um, who this woman was. I told him the story about the funeral when I was staying at his cabin. At that point, I think I was 32 or 33, and he told me that story. So. Um, and my grandmother doesn't know, my mother doesn't know, none of them knew how much I knew about their lives from other people. Mm -hmm. And they're all since gone. So my entire family is gone. Um, wow. Wow. <laughs> We're a few minutes in. That's a lot. Uh, so the point about this, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, violence and poverty are among the reasons people join cults. They have a, a sense of meaning and purpose. They're told they're special and they join for that. And then they stay because they're stuck. They just, they think that's where they have to be. And so even though they're miserable, often they don't leave. Yeah, it becomes familiar and it's it's better to stick with the familiar than the unknown, right? In that, in and that they think mind aspect. I didn't know I could leave when I was 19. I mean, yeah. so. So did your mom, you're saying your mom never, you never felt like she really loved you? She just kind of, did she, did she ever get over that? Oh, definitely not. She no. hated me. She told my sisters I was the Antichrist. She would yell at me when I was a little girl and say, I wish I would have aborted you. And, um, and that's what, that's how I knew actually that her relatives had tried to get her to have an abortion, mm -hmm. which I think she should have. I really do. It ruined her life. And mm -hmm. when I tell people that, they're like, "What? you wouldn't be here. And it's like, yeah, but what about her life? Yeah. You know, honestly, her life was completely ruined. Hmm. And it was more so from the societal aspects of people looking down on her, right? It was a lot of it. It was a lot of it. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't, I'm sure she lost her job after that since her boss raped her. I don't know what happened. She had worked at Zales downtown. So she, she was very beautiful. So mm -hmm. she, I'm sure she got the job because she was very beautiful, mm -hmm. um, because she was of um, uh, below average intelligence. Mm -hmm. And did that, that boss ever attempt to be your father in any way? Yeah, right before he died of cancer. Yeah. Oh, I want to, I'm sorry, I haven't been there your whole life. I'll be the best dad. And I'm really glad I did get to spend that time with him. But mm -hmm. um, no, he, he um, in order to get 
um, some kind of child support from him. My mother had me write letters to him, and then she took those to court. But I don't want to get into that aspect of I'd rather talk about the cultic thing sure, because it's sure. so important. But it is important for people. There's a lot of stories like mine for people in cults. And, you know, I never – I was married. I never told my husband that I'd been in a cult. I tried to tell him one time. And I didn't know how to say it. I said I grew up in a church similar to the Mennonites. And he said, no, you didn't. <laughs> so I never tried again. And very, very few people knew anything about my life and until recently. Um, I told very few people I was conceived through rape, things like that. Partly because people don't, you know, it's hard to hear. But I think we do need to start talking about it because I've told people that at parties. And they'll say, oh, that happened to a friend of mine, too. It's more common than you think being raped by your boss and getting pregnant. So I have, because I've shared my story, I've heard of other people. And I will tell you that the people who've been conceived through rape, a lot of them say that their parents should have had an abortion. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of wrecks everything, I imagine. For like everybody. you said, yeah. So you were nine years old, you said, when your mom decided to take you guys into the move of God. She didn't decide to take us into. She had been invited to a meeting and heard the good news. The world was going to end in five years. And for someone who, you know, didn't benefit from society in the ways that I do, for instance, I have a lot of friends. I have a very fun life. I've traveled to 22 different countries, studied many languages. I've had almost every kind of lesson you can imagine, fencing, horseback riding, kayaking. And so I've, you know, I've had, I've benefited from the world I live in. My mother didn't. And a lot of the people in in the move, you know, as an adult looking back on it and talking to people and, you know, realizing how many of them came from violent, abusive homes, authoritarian, which is part of why it's comfortable to be told what to do. For me personally, I'm not a follower. I'm not the kind of person who would join any kind of a group where somebody told me what to do. And yet that's how I grew up. I grew up without a voice. I grew up doing what I was told. Hmm. I was kept out of school to the extent that in my Late 20s, I had less than a ninth grade education. I now have a master's in public administration. Because they didn't focus on trying to educate the younger people? Well, it's really common for children and vulnerable people to be exploited. So um, before we joined the move, I had a very, very spotty education. We moved regularly, partly because my mother and stepfather couldn't pay their rent. Um, and so if we moved one month before the school ended, there was no point in registering me. And then if we got somewhere, um, you know, it, it, on both ends, it worked out that way, that I was kept out of school a lot. And I was, um, I was um, always told to beware of truant officers who were looking for children like me who weren't in school. And I was a straight-A student. I loved school. I, at five years old, I told my grandmother, I'm going to college. Then the, the move... When I um, I dropped out of high school, I had six months is all I did. Many people never got any high school. Some did graduate, so it varied. It wasn't like there was a rule. Um, and at 17, I didn't want to marry anybody, and I didn't um, have a family, and I didn't have any direction in my life. And some idiot came through to the Portland body of the move of God, each city group was called a body, mm -hmm. like the body of Christ. So um, so somebody came through and, and um, over the pulpit told us about this fabulous place, Grand Marais, great food, wonderful place. Didn't say it was Karen teaching, which is like a reform 
kind of place like a low security prison is basically what it was for people in the move who were bad. So I went to the elders and said, I want to go to Grand Marais. So they sought visions. Visions came back positive. They raised $100 to send me off. I was 17. They didn't even spell the name right. They spelled Grand Marais, M-A-R-A-Y, which it was a French name, Marais. I now speak French. So <laughs> I'm very proud of my education. I'm proud of my accomplishments because they've been hard won. Anyway, um, so they sent me off to Grand Marais, and I left here in uh, May when it was warm, when I was wearing shorts, um, even though you're not supposed to. <laughs> when I lived in an individual house, sometimes we did things like that, uh -huh. or watch television, or some people smoked cigarettes. Sometimes I wore pants, and was, people would see me in public wearing pants, which was humiliating. But anyway, getting back to Grand Marais, so I go there with summer clothes, and it is still snow snow on the ground so up near the Canadian border. And I was 17, and I hadn't had dental care. I'd been working for years buying my own glasses and shoes because my mother wouldn't. And when I got there, I asked if I could um, not work. I said, I've been working for so many years. I just need a break. And I was told, no, you have to work. So I worked and gave them half of my salary at 17. This is a registered nonprofit. They did not pay for my medical care, my dental care, my glasses, my clothes, nothing. And I was forced to work seven days a week waitressing. And I was a terrible waitress, really bad. And um, and the weekends I cleaned a motel and motel rooms. And then on my off time, um, I had to work and cook and work, do, do all the men's laundry, go with the women into town to do the men's laundry, things sure. like that. That's so... I was labor trafficked. Okay. That's labor trafficking. I never realized until a couple months ago I was labor trafficked, and it hit me hard. So this this was part of the move, the, the, this place that they sent you, Grand, Grand Marais. That I chose to go to. I thought I chose to that go you to. You thought you chose to, where they, they raised $100 to send you off. That was part it was one of, of our it? many, many farms in the move. That's okay. why one of our traveling ministry came through and told us about this wonderful place. And the food was better than the shit they ate in Alaska and Canada. It was I a see. lot better. We had farm fresh vegetables. Um, but it was a, it was hell. It was yeah. fucking hell. I was miserable. I'm sorry for swearing. No, you can swear. It's okay. Um <clears throat> well, let's go back just a little bit because um, so you you came in there when you were nine and your sister was seven. Your sister was two years younger. Yeah, she's the one who brought the little girl home from second grade. Pa somebody, a woman named Pamela, um, who and and we were uh, we weren't parented even in my twenties when I didn't realize how bad it was. I told people I was raised by wolves, so. Pamela couldn't go home because she couldn't cross the very busy street of Portland Boulevard over by the bluff by University of Portland. I like grounding things in Portland so it's real for people. Sure. And I, I remember at the time thinking that was ridiculous. Why couldn't this little seven-year-old cross this huge busy street that she'd never crossed before? So her mother got called. Her mother came over and her mother then told my mother the good news. That was the beginning. That was how she found out. Okay. So you, you're saying that she used her daughter to— No, 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 no. She honestly believed it. Okay. She okay. really believed it was a good thing. She thought she was helping my mother. Okay. So this is up in North Portland area, and it is—do they have land? Like, how, how does it become a contained group? That's the thing that people find the hardest to understand. Even if you're in a city, you're still exploited, controlled, neglected, abused— um, 
So because we weren't supposed to have friends outside the cult, very common. Sure. Of course, we couldn't have televisions, couldn't read secular books. And, you know, so and my, I already didn't have, you know, books in my home. I grew up without many books at all. So then on top of it, telling my mother that it was, and then it was also telling my mother it was okay not to care for us because the world was going to end in five years. So educating the children wasn't that important. So what was what was important then? Oh God! I, as I as I I forget about how crazy it all is until like you asked me that question. We were supposed to be perfected by walking through the fire, and we were supposed to. I mean, this is so preposterous. So we were going to become perfect, and then the world was going to end. Um, um, revelation style. There's a lot more people who believe this than you would think, even today. So the world is going to end. We were going to usher in the many-membered man-child, this child of God. And so Sam Fife, who started this group, was, of course, unemployed at the time that God called him to save the world. <laughs> Sam Fife? F-I-F-E. There have been many, many books written about Sam Fife and the move. Many books. Interviews, all sorts of things. Newspaper articles, um, documentaries. And yet... Very few people have heard about it because they've remained under the radar. I'd never heard his name before until you just said it. So he, he creates this thing called The Move, and you become a part of it. You're not allowed any books. You're not allowed to watch TV. Some books, and some people did have. Well, some, yeah, what about the Bible? Oh, God, you're supposed to memorize the entire chapter, and which just, I did. Just the standard King James Version. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. But we understood it better than everyone else. Because it was types and shadows, and so everyone else was going to go to hell. So we were going to save the world. So what what happens after that five years when, when the man-child comes down? Then what? Oh, we're not supposed to know when the world's going to end. But we're still right. But what are they preparing you for? What What is the goal? What are you hoping is going to happen in five years? You know, that kind of went away, and I'd never heard it talked about later. But the idea was... Oh, it was just exploitive. It was horrible. <laughs> Later finding out that, that some of the traveling ministry or the father ministry lived in fabulous houses and took European vacations mm -hmm. with the money from the labor from children like me. Um, but getting back to that, so we, even today, the move has farms in Alaska and Canada, thousands of acres, a sawmill, restaurants. Uh, I don't know if they still have an inn or not. Some of my information is old. Um, lots and lots of land. The people who came and sold their houses and gave them the money to buy this land, when they left, they left penniless. And so the, all of the money remains with whoever stays, even right now today. Hmm. Well, and it's, it's considered a uh, religious group, so they're probably tax-exempt, right? Right. Yeah. That's... And to describe it, many people lived in city bodies. Then there would be a body house. So we rented a house for at one point in Westland um, where 27 people lived in this huge house. Um, and I shared, I lived in the women's dorm when I was, how old was I then? About 12, I think, 12 or 13 with all of these women um, and shared a bed with my mother. I didn't even think anything of it at the time. Luckily, my mother got kicked out. But then we were homeless for a while. Um, you have bizarre stories about that, too kind of bouncing around. They kicked you out of the church and she remained in it? No, they just kicked us out of the house. And that might have been, was that the same time or later? 
Um, I, I, so there was a body school is what they called it, um, where our teachers who were smarter than everyone else, our school was harder because we had the smartest teachers. Most of them had never taken a single college class. Hmm. I learned almost nothing. So luckily, my mother got in a fight with the uh, same woman who came to the house. She was a teacher for a while, a teacher in this school, uneducated, you know, <laughs> I just can't believe how ridiculous this is. My mom slapped her. Slapped a teacher? Yeah. Wow. She was an elder at the time, too, the, this other woman. Our school was in the basement on a concrete floor with terrible teachers. So my mother slapped her, and I got kicked out, which is so dumb. It's like, if you really thought this was a good school, they should have kept me there. But luckily, when I got kicked out, of course, my mother didn't want me to go to public school. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to a Catholic school. Still know some of the people from eighth grade. Hmm. So I went to a Catholic school for, I don't know what it was, maybe seven or eight months. So take me to when you're a kid, when when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and you're involved in this, and you're, you're living in that house with 27 other people. What What is the day-to-day like? If, if you can't read other than the Bible, and you can't watch TV, I mean, are you allowed to play with each other and— and have dolls and stuff? Like, what are you doing day to day? No. Just worked. You just worked. What would they have a 12-year-old girl doing? Scrubbing walls, cooking. We shouldn't talk about this too much. I'm, I'm surprised that I'm getting emotional. We, we don't have to if you don't want to. That's fine. It's just, um, I will say that, of course, this group is all about love and God is love. And there's God all over the move where there isn't in the rest of the world. And there was a lot of fighting, you know. I was making cookies with two women in the kitchen one time, and they got into an argument about if you substitute honey for sugar, you should use a lot less honey. I mean, it made no sense. And they and I was supposed to be making the cookies, and they were they had this huge argument. There are things like that all the time. Hmm. And what was it like when it came to eating the meals? Did did they have rations? No, um, I don't remember the food being good or bad, but. Um, because there were some single women living there, of course, that had who had babies. Um, my my most clear memories of living there were watching babies being beaten, newborn babies even being beaten with spoons. Like so, at the table there'd be high chairs with a baby, and if the baby didn't sit up straight, the elder who lived there, who was also the principal of our school, who was a fucking letter carrier, is a mailman, um, and a complete and total asshole, very violent man. Um, he would make the women uh, beat their babies, and they didn't want to, or, and hold their noses until they passed out. This has been widely reported, um, widely reported. There's a lot of evidence for this to be true. This was in the 60s? Oh, late 60s and early, early 70s. 70s. <coughs> Jesus, this is wild. Um, I'm not even telling you the bad stuff, really. I'm not. I really don't think most people could handle the bad stuff. So what, what, I just don't get it. What, why even do that? These just crazy sadistic people who... Some of them, yeah, some of them. And those people tend to rise and have more power. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, look at Cuomo, Putin, right? Mm-hmm. Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that whole psychological thing that once you get power... Um, if you buy into the belief that you're above everybody and you're better than everybody, then whatever you decide to do is okay because they're inferior and they don't understand. 
yeah, it's just like a weird psychological uh, spiral you can go down. But to beat a baby or to order people to beat a baby? Babies don't know what they're doing. Um, I think it was so much of the move, like many cults, was based on de demons. So if you had a problem, it was obviously a demon. And if you doubted the move, that was a demon doubting Thomas. So then, so you had to fight the doubt that you were in the right place. So I think that's one of the reasons so many people conformed in that house where 27 people lived in West Lynn, there was the huge master bedroom. And it had, off of it, there was a sitting room that I don't know if it had been used for a nursery previously, but it was the nursery. So there were three cribs in there. And if when a baby was put down to go to sleep, if they lifted their head up, they got beaten. And so I remember David again, the letter carrier, his wife um, beating standing and looking through the slats in the little doors, looking to see if the baby was going to lift its head. And every time the baby lifted its head, she would go in and beat it. That baby today is a beautiful woman who lives somewhere, I want to say, in um, far east of here. She has a beautiful family, lovely, wonderful children. I don't know how. I don't know how she survived. She does have wonderful siblings who are supportive of her. Mm -hmm. um, it's just amazing how many people have managed to, I mean, like I remember seeing her on a swing when she was a little girl and I was like 15 and 16. I would just look at her and she was so depressed. She was so depressed. And I remember feeling for her and feeling powerless. And she has a really beautiful life today. Well, that's good. I'm glad she could overcome that. Um, some of that stuff that happens when you're a kid or an infant, you maybe if you don't even know that it happened, it just like becomes a part of you, right? I don't think it becomes a part of you. I never felt comfortable in the noob. I've never fit in. None of it ever made sense to me. I didn't like the people. Um, but I halfway believed a lot of the bullshit because I'd grown up with it. Yeah. So Michael Shermer wrote the book, The Believing Brain, which explains, you know, why is it that if you grew up in a Catholic family, you tend to be Catholic? If you grew up in a Jewish family, you tend to be Jewish. There's a lot of science for why that is. And so um, people who grew up in the move um, tended to believe it. Until they didn't. A lot of people left as soon as they could, um, as soon as they could, which is very hard to leave, I will say. Yeah, I mean, what what kept, other than the fact that they were scared of the unknown, what kept people in there? What Was there anything positive that ever happened where it made you feel like, oh, this is why I'm here. This is, this is a great thing. <laughs> uh, uh, no. No? Nothing? No. Um, no, um, I did have a positive experience in Grand Marais, though. Um, there was a man there who didn't agree with a lot of the rules. I don't know why he was there. I think he was having some kind of financial issues because he lived in the communal house with us in Duluth, Minnesota. After I left Grand Marais, well, I was sent to Duluth because they needed me to work to pay for a remodel of a kitchen. So then they took three quarters of my salary. Anyway, so when I was in Duluth, um, there was this, this really wonderful guy, um, and in Grand Marais, he took us hiking, and it was so wonderful, so beautiful. Um, I'm an avid hiker today. Um, I think that was the first time in my life I'd ever been hiking. It was just wonderful. He also put up a basketball hoop that the woman who ran the place, Catherine Chapman, who's been deceased for decades, uh, she had the basketball hoop taken down. I mean, the minute her tires hit the gravel and she saw it, it was gone. Um, then in Duluth, I lived there, and he lived in the same house. 
and we were allowed to go to the mall one day. And um, at this point, I'm 19, paying three quarters of my salary, and I'm not allowed to go swimming at the motel where I clean, you know, because men. And um, so anyway, he, we went out for pizza one night after the mall, and I went home and said something about us going out for pizza, and he got in trouble. And he said, why did you say anything? And I was confused, but I should have said, well, if you thought it was okay for us to go out for pizza, why am I? I in trouble for saying it. And it was just, that's what my life was like. It was very confusing. Because you weren't allowed to hang out with men? No, because we didn't have permission to go out for pizza. Oh, you have to get permission for everything. Of course. Okay. And then um, the men thing, I came home with wet hair one day and somebody reported it because people are always reporting you. And so um, I was told then that um, I couldn't swim because men would see me. I was like, there's nobody in the pool when I use it ever. And there never had been. But so I, and that I loved swimming, still do. So that was like my one thing I had, the one thing. They don't want you flashing your body for the men because it's desirable. What, what's the, what, what, what's that oh, about? Oh, I forgot about this. Well, even you couldn't even dress in front of a woman at all. You had to completely, you could never, nobody could see you because people might be turned on. So people were um, long, you know, skirts right below the knee. Um, we couldn't wear worldly clothes um, or have worldly hairstyles. So just like pop culture, fashionable stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Men had to have really short haircuts because long was in style at the time. You know, Dave started going by David, the elder. So it was like, it was a very, when you control how people dress, you've already gotten them to buy into doing something they don't want to do. So it's easier to get them to buy into more and more. So for instance, with the Rajneeshis, why are they all dressing the same way? Because you, you're, it's a one way to start the coercion. It's, it's so important to the whole buy-in. The Rajneesh were different when it came to sex though, because they were, they're all banging everybody. But it's still a cult. Yes. You've seen Wild Wild Country? I don't want to see it. I've read a lot about the Rajneeshis. And I watch a lot of cultic stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you lived it. So, yeah, it's probably pretty hard to watch something like that. I mean, does it it trigger you and send you back to to certain things if you read or or watch anything? Rarely. Yeah. I love watching Escaping Polygamy. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that. Is that a series? TV show. Yeah. Three girls who at 15 decided to leave. Mm-hmm. At 15, they then left. I mean, they said, it, it's amazing. They left and then they started helping other people leave and they have a television show. Hmm. And there's a woman who lives in Portland who has worked with them in helping girls escape. Believe it or not, right now today, there are girls trying to escape. F- FLDS. The woman who um, worked with them, her name is Ashlyn Hilliard. She is the first West Coast presence we've had for the International Cultic Studies Association. She's um, a real mover and shaker. Um, she's very young, very fresh out of the cult, and she's very competent, and she's just amazing. It's fascinating that there are groups that are still operating like this in in this Day and age, 2021. I I know. Harry Reid said that in 2008 about the FLDS. One of my goals is to expand some of the protections we have for people from cults based on models we already have. Harry Reid said these are criminal organizations, organized crime. They need to be stopped. 
and he um, and some there was there were Senate hearings where they um, discussed setting up funding for the women to come and testify against cult leaders, at babysitting for the children so the women could testify, therapy. So um, it's so hard for me to talk about this in a linear way because my head is full of so much at once yeah. I'm thinking of right now. Like in other countries, they do a much better job than we do in the U.S. In other countries, they have legislation that says you have to provide therapy for these people, people when they leave. Um, we don't have that here. The, the um, Convention on the Rights of the Child that the U.S. is the only country not to fucking ratify, that convention is what we need for children from cults. It says children have a right to an education. They have a right to health care. And so we in the U.S. need to ratify that. And we need to provide those protections for children from cults because I was a, a citizen. I was a United States citizen. And I did not know I had human rights. I didn't know I had any rights at all. And if I had known that, I would have stood up for myself. And so one of my goals and one of my efforts in the past has been to make people in isolated communities aware of the fact that they have cults. Because teenagers and cults go online. They do, even if they're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, they should. Uh, <clears throat> it's wild that you could be a part of something like that in the center of Portland, Oregon, like one of the most liberal areas. There's lots of cults in Portland. But yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, the, the one of the elders in, in um, the move was a manager at Denny's, <laughs> owned a house. And then he, because he had a better job education and credit history than other people. He got to go to a Canadian farm. So I grew up being told that I would go to a farm in Alaska someday. And my family wasn't good enough to go. And I'm so glad for that. So all of our money went for buying all this shit so that we could live without electricity and running water, like many people did. Many of my friends went and did that. The men would haul water with the horses. The girls would cook without um, having any kind of like power equipment. Men had power tools. There was a lot of frustration over if we can't have electricity, why do the men get to have power tools, hmm. you know, run from generators? So I grew up knowing all of this, knowing people were living without toilet paper. They used newspapers. They, they would read the newspaper. To this day, people from the move of God often talk about toilet paper. It comes up all the time. How they have to have good toilet paper now. Um, how they used to read the newspaper and they, because the sheets were torn, the articles were torn, they'd be reading a story and they didn't get to finish it. People to this day, people my age and older talk about that, how they didn't get to finish reading the story. Okay, so if you thought it was okay to read the newspaper, why weren't you saying, hey, I'm reading the newspaper in the outhouse how come I can't buy one in town? I mean, it makes no sense when you f think about it, but we yeah. didn't think about it. Hmm. So, going... Yeah, these people were flying off for European vacations while my friends were living without toilet paper. So, so you're, you're involved with the move of God. You're in Portland. <clears throat> They're telling you that within five years, this thing is going to happen. And this thing never makes it here because five years is always another year later, I guess. They no, just keep moving a, it. No, they didn't. They just quit talking they about it. They just quit talking about it. And I didn't notice that. I was a child. Um, also, oh, so, so much weirdness. 
that we we went to meetings as children in metal chairs in basements and garages, mostly basements, sometimes living rooms, <coughs> where the children would be beaten if they didn't sit up straight the whole time. There's no Sunday school, so little children. This is well documented. I know, as I say, it, it's going to be hard to believe. We would be there till midnight or one o'clock because the Holy Spirit was on us. And it was such a powerful night. The children need to be here. And then you go to school the next day and fall asleep in school. I slept in school all the time. And I'm sure the teachers report. I, I reported it. I wish I could have seen my files. I would put up my binder around me and I would just sleep on my desk and miss school a lot. We would be taken out of school when there was some traveling ministry coming through town because that's more important. So how often did you go to service? Three times a week. <clears throat> yeah, so I spent all my time learning this bullshit about types and shadows and numerology. And, and I think that some people, because they weren't you know, good learners, they weren't well-educated, they, were, they got to feel special and like they understood something. And I think it was um, a kind of learning they could grasp that felt good because it was also connected to their sense of community and belonging and having some kind of purpose in their lives. So we would learn about like yellow was the color of this. I don't even remember what they were. Um, black, this, and I think it was death, maybe red, this, you know, I think red was the atonement from the blood of Jesus. So that's what we were learning until midnight or how violent everything was going to get and people's flesh dripping from trees because it's so hot on earth and all these other bad people these bad christians had to walk through the tribulation to then go to some kind of a heaven someday and this is what i grew up learning instead of science instead of poetry yeah and so did you did you go to grocery stores yeah of course did you go to a hardware store? Did you go to like local areas where you'd see regular people? Oh yeah, that's part of why. Um, that's part of why it was easier for me to leave than most people because that's called disengaging. So I, because I knew people, and I had one friend outside of the cult. Um, while we were in the um, body school, we had to be tested because the state of Oregon at the time required if you're home, because that was technically we were homeschooled, sure. you had to be tested, which I we need to make. Did you know there are many states in which you can homeschool your kids and never have them tested? One of the many things we need to change. So when I was at the testing center, I met this girl. Um, we were both 14. And I don't know how, because I, I never talked to any BD people. People now who I went to school with, like in eighth grade, say you you were really quiet. You never talked to anybody. Can you imagine me as being quiet? <laughs> it was obviously um, depression, the cult, not valuing myself, not knowing anybody would want to hear anything I had to say. Um, so we became friends. And I would, while I was in the cult, I would go to her house and we would, she, she would teach me dance. We would do dances together. Um, in eighth grade, I went to this one girl's house, Marianne, and we listened to Bay City Roller Records. So um, I had that. The people who went to the farms, like my mother desperately wanted to do, those are the most fucked up of the people I know, just totally fucked up. Mm -hmm. So imagine being born and raised on one of these farms, or as many of them went when they were six or eight. Everyone has a story about when they went there. All their toys were thrown away. They had to work. Children in, quit school in sixth grade to build the roads and the buildings that are there today. Um, I mean, backbreaking work. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there are apologists who say it's not true. The kids had a wonderful time. That's not what I hear. 
So, and I have lots of documentation for all of this. But anyway, those people, some of them never went into town ever. So they were on this, like, let's say you've got 80 acres. Some of them would be 400 acres. It's all different sizes. Farms were all over the place and, and still are. Um, and you go to school in the tabernacle and you eat in the tabernacle, these rough buildings, really rough and horrible looking buildings. Um, and you work on the farm and you never leave. That's your whole world. That's all you know. And when you want to leave, like so many people I've heard want to leave, but they have no money, no education, no skills. Where would they go? Be homeless? Yeah. So they get trapped in that spot and you were fortunate enough that you... I had one of the worst families. That's one of the only good things about coming from a family that was so awful. <laughs> you were able to, how did you, how did you make friends with Marianne when you were 14? Because that's when we got, and I got kicked out of the body school and I went to the St. Ignatius Catholic School um, at, I think it's like 42nd and Powell. So getting kicked out and having to go to the Catholic school was a good thing. Oh, it was wonderful. That's great. So what was it like when you were listening to Bay City Rollers and dancing? Was it like... Oh, I was happy. Yeah. I was happy. And would you come back to the move and tell other people, oh, I listened to a record. I did this. I did that. Or did you keep it quiet? Uh, I, when I was, I think, how old was I? I think I was like 18 or 19 and I was a virgin. And I, or maybe I was 17 at the time. I don't know why it's the weirdest thing in the world, but I would fantasize about going out and having sex and coming back and being like, oh, I had sex. Like I was so bad. <laughs> That's a normal thought for somebody that age. No, but the fact that I wanted to have this dark secret. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that just cracks me up. Anyway, um, well, you know, my life was very complicated, and it's part of why I've, people have had difficulty pin, pinning my story down in interviews. And you're doing an amazing job, by Thank the you. way. Thank you. Um, I, at 15, I ran away and went to live with my grandmother. And I remember my mother, the last word, I, I wouldn't be allowed to go to school if I didn't have all the housework done, the laundry, the shopping, the cooking. Um, I my, And I've recently found out that's labor trafficking, too. My mother... Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I had the worst education, which is amazing. That did really well in grad school, by the way. <laughs> so um, I put my suitcase over the fence and I said goodbye to my mother and said I was going to school. And I walked up to a shoe store on 82nd Street, still there, I believe, used the phone and said, called my grandmother at work and said, Grandma, I just ran away. And she said, well, the back door's open, go home. And she said, my grandmother was no nonsense. So she was not very nurturing. I would have left work, but no, she's like, I'll be home at six o'clock. So, um, so then sadly, I didn't, I, I didn't realize my, my home life completely fell apart for my sisters because I wasn't there to do the laundry and cooking mm. and housework. And so it was really bad. It was really nightmarish what went on there. And I'm still learning about some of it today because I got the medical records for my sister who died of a heroin overdose, my sister who was two years younger. Um, but I, So I live with my grandmother and she took me to church every Sunday and I told her I didn't want to go to church anymore. And I realize now, I wasn't 
not only did I not like her church, the only kind of church I knew that felt familiar was the weird move services where everyone's standing up and singing and clapping and speaking in tongues. And even though I didn't like any of that, it made more sense to me than a church where you just go sit down. So um, even though we did a lot of sitting down for hours after the singing and dancing in the spirit, which actually I liked that. <laughs> Uh, so um, that was the only time we could dance because it was the Israelis did it. You know how you see at Jewish weddings that kind of dancing people yeah. do? Yeah, we, we did that. We were allowed to do that. Anyway, so I um, lived with my grandmother for a while, and then um, I should have been in therapy. God. Um, but I wasn't. Um, she She understood that you were in a bad spot. And she disagreed with what your mom was doing, but she But she also hated my mother. So she was not very good to my mother. Okay. So they didn't have a good relationship and they didn't communicate really? What was your relationship with your grandma prior to that? Did she have any idea the ridiculous? No. No? No. I I don't think she knew. I don't think she knew. Although I had aunts who, when I was in my 30s, would say, some dad, that cult you were in. And it's like, I didn't know they knew about that. So my mother must have talked to them about it. But um, my grandmother, she was a character, a very avid hunter and a gun collector. She and her husband, I mean, oh, they were avid hunters. I fell asleep uh, as a child on the bearskin rug from the bear they shot and ate their venison and the fish they caught. And so, um, but my grandmother was a drill sergeant. I came to understand she was very much a narcissist. So um, she was, she wasn't very nurturing, but she really tried, and and she really loved me in her own way. She really did. Did you ever explain to her what had happened? No, I never ex- tried to explain it to anybody because I didn't even know. I didn't understand anything. I didn't know I was in a cult. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, but didn't you have conversations with people, and they're like, "Yeah, I went to the movies with my parents," and you're like, "Isn't didn't normal stuff seem weird?" Because no. you had never done it before. No, I had done it. For one thing, um, my I, I had a, I had a really wonderful stepfather. I think that's one of the reasons I'm sane. I, by the way, spent a lot of time in therapy, trying, you know, figuring it out. Why am I not crazy? I mean, we're all crazy, and I have PTSD. But, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And therapists just say we don't meet people like you. People don't suffer the way you have and come out healthy. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that a lot. And I, one of the reasons is that woman who took care of me when I was six months old. Another reason is um, so much interaction with the outside world that was positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the fe- well, and my stepfather. My stepfather was um, he brought a lot of joy into our lives and. Um, we loved him. We called him Daddy Ray. He was a chef in local restaurants in Portland and a fabulous artist, hmm. um, Raymond Franklin Sockerson. He was also a heroin addict who we visited in prison. Those were my family outings as a kid. He was in the Rocky Butte Jail, where I now go with my friends, and we have wonderful happy hours up there every year. Um, he was great. He would dance around in his boxer shirts to Three Dog Night and make huge things of popcorn and take us to the movies to drive in. While you were in the move? No, this is before. Okay. I was going to say. My mother divorced him to go into the move because that was a better place for us than with this guy. Okay. The move finally quit telling women to divorce their husbands because they had all these poor single women. Yeah. That that was the other thing I was thinking of when we were talking earlier about um, 
the interaction when you're talking about going swimming and and not showing any part of your body what what did they do in order to get people to marry and procreate like that's you need to create more humans to incorporate they into. They didn't have to do anything. But Teenagers I mean, want to have sex and they want to get married. Yeah, but I mean, if they're constantly telling you guys you can't show anything more than your ankles, like what happened? People just had to go do it behind everybody's back and then. It would occasionally happen. Of course, there were girls that got pregnant, mm-hmm. um, which was obviously very frowned upon. But no, um, so. Um, I used to code switch a lot um, because so I could talk. I did talk about my life, but I code switched. So when my best friend from the move, um, Benita Bauman, I only say the names of people when I'm not criticizing <laughs> Benita Bauman, who to this day lives in Canada. Um, she, I met her in Grand Marais, and she was sent there because an elder son um, had a crush on her, and they didn't want her to be the choice for the son. So she came to stay with me and my husband on our property in Sherwood. I lived on Broken Fur Road on Parrot Mountain. Beautiful area. Beautiful. Lots of deer. Wonderful. She came and stayed with me. And we were, I remember sitting in the dining room. And um, instead of saying walking out your year, I said got engaged. And I, and I did that all the time. And she didn't say anything. And I always code switched until recently. So you could walk out your year. So if you think God wants you to marry someone, you go to the elders and then they seek visions. And if the visions come back positive, obviously then adults have a lot of say here, right? Because they can have the visions be what they want. And if the visions came back other than what they wanted to hear, they would tell the prophets to go back and pray again for new visions. Something I never thought about, but people have mentioned today, they're like, that was bullshit. Um, So you go to the elders, then for a whole year, you get to know the person, but you don't ever kiss them. You can't hold hands. So you get to know them. At the end of the year, if you still want to get married, you have to go seek visions again, and then you start planning the wedding. What do you do for a year? You just... Talk. You just hang out and talk, and you can't touch each other. You can't be alone together either. So you be in the... I can't believe how ridiculous I grew up. <laughs> you can't be alone together? Who's in the of room with you? Not. In You're elder? in the tabernacle. What is wrong with you? Why would you let people be alone together? Wow. Yes. No, you can't be alone together. I did find out recently that some people went and made out in Grand Marais behind the men's dorm that there were people making out back there. The problem is the more you make something taboo and the more you tell someone you can't do it, the more they want to do it. No, I was so unsexual. You are, they kill your sexuality. I have a lot of testosterone. Excuse me for saying this. I have a very high sex drive. I didn't even notice men. I didn't even notice men. I mean, I swear, silly. I mean, I know there was a man. I never noticed that men have beautiful arms. Seriously. Until even even in my 20s. And I, because of it, was so ingrained on me. I was going to wait till I got married to have sex, which is the dumbest thing. Mm-hmm. The dumbest thing. And I'm so glad I didn't. But um, I was so unsexualized. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I woke up. But why do you think that is? Because they... They squashed that portion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they want to be in control of deciding, based on the visions, who you're going to end up with. No, it was mostly morality because it's immoral. Dancing would make you want to have sex, so you couldn't dance. Music would make you want to have sex, so you couldn't have secular music. So then what? what is, what is the age group or 
At what stage in your life do they decide you're ready to have a husband and start They don't having... decide. You go to them and say, I've, I've, God spoke to me to walk out my year with So that you're waiting person. for God to tell you. Well, obviously it's not God. It's attraction, hormones, whatever. <laughs> so he could be 15 and you see Ricky over there and you're like, oh, God's talking to me. No, they would never let somebody get married at that age. Mm. Luckily, yeah. No, we had none of that. None of that. So what was the average age to get married? I don't really know. And all the communities were really different. I will mm -hmm. say, like, for instance, I just recently found out that one of the farms, it's a, called Bowen's Mill. It's in uh, Georgia. They drank wine there. Hmm. They drank wine. I cannot believe that. Oh. Um, and so the rules were different in different communities. It doesn't make sense if there's only one right way to do it. They, so the move was active in 30 countries. Now it's only active in 15. So it's very widespread. So there's a lot of differences in the culture. Um, most people, I would say, got married in their 20s. Hmm. I want to say like probably 25 would be the average age. And maybe part of it was we were so unsexualized. You know, you don't talk about it. You don't learn about it. You don't think about it. I didn't, I had no idea what a vagina looked like. When I was um, in, was I in Duluth? Or, I was in Grand Marais, so I would have been 18. And somehow the doctor I was seeing, was doing an exam and asked me if I'd ever seen myself. And I said, no. She held up a mirror. I hope this isn't too personal for you. No. I fell back when I saw it. I was like, oh, my God. People know I have one of those. And I walked around like I was in a daze walking down the street for several days. I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Well, yeah, I guess because you <laughs> you were taught to never see Anyone naked, a guy right. or a girl. And we didn't have secular books or anything. So did you And there even, was no internet. Did you even know what a penis was? Yeah. I don't remember how I knew, but oh, yeah, I definitely knew what a penis was. So there were- there I've were... been sexually abused by my biological grandfather. Okay. So yeah, you you knew some things <clears throat> in a roundabout way. Um... And, oh, and I remember before we were in the move, I remember when I was, I must have been- a five. I was five. Um, I'm basing that on when my mother married my father and how old I remember at the time. There was a little boy who lived across the street, and he came over, and we both took our underwear off in the bathroom and showed each other our things. But, oh, I must have been in his house when we did it because I left my underwear, and his mother came over very upset. <laughs> I forgot these. I wasn't ashamed of that. Well, and what about, what about with babies? Oh, that's right. It was all lots of naked babies. That's right? different. Okay. That's unsexual. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. It's wild. It's super wild. Um, Weirder than you thought it was going to be, huh? Well, no. I mean, it's just enlightening to hear you say it and know that you lived it. I, I'm not surprised really by anything, but to speak with somebody who experienced it firsthand and made it out and to know that this is still an institution operating. Still has nonprofit status. Still has nonprofit status. Is still taxes exempt by the federal government. Um, it doesn't seem possible. And uh, the fact that they continue, I mean, obviously the most popular one is Scientology. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they exist in the way that they do is because they've somehow managed to uh, cull famous mm -hmm. actors and actresses. But 
And the fact that they're on street corners today proselytizing, pulling people in. I have people walk up to me handing me Scientology literature all the time. Really? Oh, that's right. You're not downtown. <laughs> no. No. Uh, I I have this fascination with all religion. Um, I don't I don't believe in anything. Uh, I don't I don't think it's possible to know the truth unless something crazy happens to you and you you have a vision or <clears throat> maybe maybe you have a, a, a near death experience and you you visualize or you see something that will allow you to believe something. I, none of that stuff has happened to me. To, so to me, my I'm like walking around in the darkness. Anything is possible, but I don't believe any of it. And I don't know that you ever really find out until you die and you can't come back and tell anybody after you die. So it's this, it's this weird unknown. And there are thousands of things that people believe happen. And people will, will dedicate their entire life. This thing that you and I have right now, which is the only thing you know is true, they will dedicate their entire life for something that they can't prove. And that seems crazy to me. And Agreed. Uh, my, um, my mom grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household. And so she, uh, I did an episode with her, um, like episode 10 or something like that. And she talks about um, getting excommunicated from Jehovah's Witnesses uh, when she was 17. And uh, she had a younger brother and a younger sister. Her parents took her pictures off the wall and told the brother and sister they couldn't say her name anymore. They tried to erase her. And she lived in a small town of a couple thousand people. And everywhere she went, if she saw someone from the church, they basically just, they shunned her. Like, you're erased. You don't exist anymore. And it totally messed her up for a while. And it seems insane to me that you could... <clears throat> You could ruin your your children's lives. The the only thing that like you really ever have to take care of, and you should want to enhance and and make better. You could completely ruin that thing that you created because of something that's unknown. It doesn't make sense. Well, I think there's a few things um, that you said that are based on um, common assumptions. Not all parents love their children. Yeah. And these stupid, stupid television commercials that you see, like, oh, every mom wants what's best for their kids. No, they don't. Um, and that, so that's one thing. A lot of the people who are in cults are abusive people from abusive backgrounds. Um, and also, I'm sorry, I'm going to burp. It's okay. Um, for, is, in terms of believing, um, I'm a humanist. There we go. I'm a humanist, and um, I really believe in science. And so, like, the near-death experiences you hear about, science has explained what that is, what the color and all that is. In your, it's just something going on in your brain. It's a mm -hmm. physiological thing. Um, I believe that this is it. I believe this is our life, um, and I believe that it's our responsibility to take care of each other and to take care of the planet. And so I don't... I, I know what you mean when you say I don't believe anything, but I'm sure you do because you believe in community. I'd imagine just that you're you have a very high emotional quotient, quite obviously, um, very very respectful. So you, obviously you believe in 
caring for other people. Sure. I do. I think this is, like you said, I think this is it. If there is something that happens later, that's cool. And it's nice to speculate on, but it's not worth wasting this in preparation for something else. Yeah, that's what we grew up singing. This world is not my home. I'm just a traveling through. Then how in the world are you going to plan your life if you're telling children, oh, that world out there, you see it, but it's not real. What's real is what's going on, you know, in the spiritual realm. God, just recently people from the move told me they still believe that. So what is your connection with people still involved? Do you talk to people? Um, not people in the move, but people from the move. Yeah, because you, if people knew about you, you'd probably be like the devil, right? They don't want okay, them talking but, to you. Okay, I said my mother told my sisters I was the Antichrist when I was little. She really hated me. And then in the move, we were always told we won't know who the Antichrist will be. We won't know. It'll be someone who so surprises you. And then um, I, I, I do some advocacy for people from cults. And I documented a lot of abuse in the move for the authorities in um, a, one, a certain place in Alaska near Fairbanks. And um, because of it, there was a court case and there was an FBI raid and a whole bunch of shit went down in 2014. And they were preaching over the pulpit in Alaska, Lisa Kendall is the Antichrist. <laughs> so my mother was right. She was. <laughs> uh, uh, so imagine me hearing, growing up, we'll never know who the Antichrist is, and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. And I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, do you, what, what are you doing now to help these people? I mean, it sounds like you're, trying to bring awareness to everything that has happened and not just with the move, but with other factions. So what, how do you even help somebody like that? Okay. Well, there is a cult awareness movement that is much bigger than people realize. It's huge. Um, And it's a network that is international and people have different things they're good at. We all have our specialty. So people will want to hook me up with someone else who does anti-cultic stuff. Um, we're not supposed to say anti-cultic, but I still do sometimes. <laughs> so um, there are people who um, specialize in exit counseling, um, in other forms of counseling. There are people who specialize in helping. I wish I knew the names of some of these amazing people who do this work. There's one woman who grew up in... A, a, a more mainstream cult where she uh, wasn't allowed to go to college. So now she started an organization that helps girls from cults go to college. That's pretty fucking cool. Hmm. And um, Kent Bertner, dear friend of mine, lives in Beaver Creek. He is an internationally famous cult awareness person. He is the one who reminds me. We don't say anti-cultic. <laughs> See, that seems weird to me because that is – the way that people recognize what you're talking about. It's a cult. Like, yeah, but we don't the... want to be anti. It makes people uncomfortable. People always think you're coming after their church. They're like, what's a cult? Do you think my church is a cult? I hear that all the time. Anyway, getting back to this. So I'm my interest is policy. I have a master's in public administration. Okay. Um, I've traveled to 22 countries. I read a lot. And um, I was in a cult. So, and I've worked with legislators in the past. So I'm only interested in policy. So 
Right now, I am supposed to be reading a policy brief, but instead I've been going out with my friends all the time. Like last night, I saw the Chinese lady, which is great. It was wonderful. Anyway, so I've been having a wonderful time now that, you know, after the vaxes, you know, I was home alone for a year and a half with my cats. (laughs) (laughs) It was a long year. Yeah. And so as soon as I got vaccinated, it was like, you know, here I come. Yeah. And because of it, I put aside a project that I I really shouldn't have. Um, I am working on a policy brief that can... Um, be kind of a foundational piece for other people to use um, based on my research of legislation and other forms of um, regulations and provisions provided by other governments, uh, mostly Western Europe, even China. China has a policy. If you coerce someone like the way I was coerced, you fucking go to prison in China and then money is given to the victim. Hmm. We don't have anything like that here. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you stop someone? This is the country where the American dream is to create something out of nothing. And if you decide that you are God, there's there's nothing like there. How do you stop that? I could I could develop something and get a bunch of followers. And if they believe I'm Christ, they believe I'm Christ. No, they do. And there's so many cults that people really believe the person is yeah. God or Christ. Cam Burtner always says there's no money in cults unless you start one. <laughs> yeah. Because these people, their entire lives devoted to either researching cults, doing therapy for cults. You know, there is a police officer who is a, a cultic specialist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a, this. I was describing this huge network of people. There is, for the first time ever, an international effort to get money to do actual solid research because we don't have any. Mm-hmm. Solid research, how many people are affected? How expensive is it to society? What happens to these people? And it's focused on human trafficking, and we can use that in cults. You were asking about the morality thing with walking out your year, not showing your bodies. We as a society have so much, like I just heard an interview yesterday, um, some NPR program um, about sex trafficking, how we are so upset about sex trafficking as a society, but not labor trafficking like farm workers who are brought here because it's a moral thing. We're moralizing it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the women who say, I want to do this for a living, there are lots of other forms of demeaning work. You know, I think that's a really interesting argument that I've just recently been learning about. But when this person said, you know, in the, the moral, that's why we're so concerned about that. We need to be concerned about labor traffic. Labor trafficking ruined my life. I mean, seriously, ruined my life. I could have had a lot more love and joy in my life than I do. You know, I, I would have not married the wrong man if I'd known to, you know, there's always so many ways growing up in a cult ruined my life. Even though I'm happy today, my life was clearly ruined. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, let's go back because you made me think about the timeline. And so you said you left and went, you left and got on the payphone when you were 15 and you went to your grandma's, but you said you went to, uh, Grand Marnay? Murray. Murray. When you were 18 or 19. Oh, because... You came back? I did. Um, because I, I really believed it at the time. That was, oh, I remember why I came back. Yeah, we got to go back to that. Okay, so um, I lived with my grandmother, and I um, went to the Metropolitan Family Services Center on 82nd. She took me there before I ran away. My grandmother took me there several times. I forgot about this. 
and to see a counselor. And I told I didn't tell the counselor anything about the cult. I told him how my mother tried to force me to smoke pot. <laughs> and you know, so it was pretty a ticket out of my house. And so I'd gone there several times and he suggested I leave. Um, finally, one day I did. And I remember when I said goodbye to my mother before I put my suitcase, after I put my suitcase behind the fence, I was walking out the front door of our house at 72nd and Foster. And my mother's on the toilet yelling about me, how you're going to clean the house when you get home. And I looked at her going, wow, those are your last words to me. And I walked out the door. So my grandmother then was a bit militant, not very nurturing, but it was, uh, there was many things about it that were good. Um, I had a boyfriend, Bobby Beauchene. Um, he's an engineer. Now, I, I always say I started dating engineers when I was in eighth grade because <laughs> he's an engineer. Really, really nice guy. Anyway, um, so I had a boyfriend. Um, I went roller skating with him. His parents came in and saw us holding hands and he got in trouble. <laughs> Good Catholic boy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so <laughs> this is so sweet. He rode his bike all the way from Gresham to my grandmother's house at 93rd in Flayville. And just to sleep in bed with me, didn't even touch me. So sweet. <laughs> nice. It was very sweet. Anyway, um, so then I, because I was going to Metropolitan Family Services, they offered me a summer job. Going around was a push pole, which I knew at the time, but I didn't know the word for it. So we were going around door to door, two youths and two adults who were school teacher types, and, um, and, asking people if they were planning to vote yes on money for parks and whatever else. It was really a push-pull, like, you know, all, all the things they would get. And um, so I got to go into all these people's houses. And the woman who um, I was doing this with, I would walk around with her we were on foot ta and talk about my grandmother. My grandmother makes me iron my sheets. I don't think I need to iron my sheets, things like that. So one day she took me home for lunch, and she was very very disorganized. They couldn't plan anything. Their whole lives are terrible. Have me over for dinner once in my, in my, let's see, I was in my 30s. And there was no dinner there because they had to go to the store to make sure the dog food wasn't rotten. And so they took the dog instead of, and we, why would you take the dog to the store? Anyway, to so smell all the food. This woman is a therapist today. She's a mental health therapist now. <laughs> so she takes me home for lunch and then she leaves to go buy lunch. And I'm left there with her husband. I'm 15 and I remember I was wearing a white visor um, over my head. Um, and I was sitting on the counter for some reason. And he said, Susan and I would like to talk to you about moving in together, <laughs> moving in with us. And I just, my, I remember my jaw just dropped. And then he dropped down to look under my visor and mocked my face, you know, made, copied my face. Mm -hmm. And so I moved in with them and they became my foster parents. And um, it was... I thought they were my saviors. I mean, it was so much better than anywhere I'd ever lived, and they were horrible. But um, but I had a normal life. I mean, I had a normal life. And so you, you kept trying to up your predicament, but it still just wasn't that good. It was still shitty, but better than the previous right. shitty. Then my mother, who had been on fire watch at the shipyards, a lot of the people in the move worked at the shipyards, mm -hmm. and um, she fell on her back. And she called me and told me she'd fell and hurt her back. And for some reason, I thought I needed to go home at 16 and take care of her, that God wanted me to do that. So that's what I did. Hmm. And I was back in the move again. Nothing inside you said, 
this is a step backward? No. Did you, were you thinking about your sister? Were you like, oh, I can help my sister out? No. You just went to help your mom. Yeah, I know. That's why you can't say, you know, people often say about teenagers, well, they want that. You know, for instance, these fucking female teachers who have sex with their students, mm-hmm. you know, and people, because it's, a, because it's a teenage boy, people will say, well, they wanted that. You don't know what you want at that age. Mm-hmm. Unless you have been um, allowed to have a voice, unless you've been allowed to say, to share your opinion, to disagree. So you don't. I mean, I, I wasn't a thinking person in any way whatsoever. Um, <coughs> people, people find that hard to believe. But if you've never been allowed to think for yourself, you don't know how to think. So what was it like when you came back then? Did you feel more enlightened than everyone else? Did you, you had all these no. new experiences, you had a boyfriend, you didn't feel any different? I didn't think. <clears throat> you don't understand, I didn't think. I didn't feel, you know. When I, I was never, ever nervous. I, when I was humiliated, it didn't bother me the way it would bother other people. I had, I was, it's called being shut down emotionally. I was completely shut down, completely hmm. shut down. Which is weird that Bobby Beauchene wanted to be my boyfriend. I don't know what the fuck he was thinking. And then I dumped him. Years later, he asked me. and dumped him multiple times. Years later, he's like, why did you dump me? I was like, I don't know. I was stupid. Mm. Oh, no, you're just going through a lot. So you come back and you're 16 and then eventually. Go to Grand Marais. Go to Grand Marais. Labor traffic. And so how long were you there? I was there for a, just over a year and a half. I left at 19. I didn't know I could leave. I never even thought about it. I was miserable. I hated everything. I didn't like anybody. We were only allowed to wash our hair once a week and take a shower once a week on Grammar and Duluth both. And um, I remember washing my hair one day and um, Loopy turned me in <laughs> for washing my hair. And then one morning before I went to work at the motel, because um, I, I had to get up earlier than everyone else. And so I went down and I cooked myself two eggs. And I remember um, Sister Grace coming in and asking me if I had two eggs. Like, the fuck? They're taking three quarters of my salary and I can't have two eggs. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I just, I was so shut down. I didn't think, I didn't really feel much. I was very, very unhappy there in Grand Marais. And, and so then I was sent to Duluth to make money to pay for the kitchen and remodel it too with fiber, what do you call that? Asbestos everywhere with no masks. And there was this woman in the move who had exploited me so many times. I stayed with her when I was 17, right before I left for Grand Marais, I stayed with her and took care of her seven kids for two weeks. I cooked, cleaned, took care of the kids, took them to the park. And of course, they didn't pay me. And on top of it, one of their children washed my contacts down the drain. And I had to buy everything myself. So I was like, shit, now I can't see. Because yeah. I was almost legally blind at the time. Seriously. Hmm. And um, extremely nearsighted. Um, another thing that neglect I didn't they didn't discover until I was in third grade because I couldn't see the chalkboard from the front row. <laughs> 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 anyway, so this woman uh, had exploited me so many times. Um, she took me to her gym to sign me up so that she could get the fee for you know, and I, it was just all sorts of things like that that she was always doing. Hmm. And so she, she, I think she and her husband got kicked out. Because she had a really problematic family. Her husband was cutting up her clothes and all of this drama. And uh, and she um, 
God, some of her kids turned out really amazing. Most of them are registered sex offenders, but the girls, wow, wonderful lives, beautiful, smart young women. Mm -hmm. Most of the people I grew up with became heroin addicts, ended up in prison, mental health wards, early graves, blew their heads off in the move, and teen lots of suicides as among teenagers in the move mm -hmm. that had been reported. Um, and so it's amazing to me when some of them turn out really well. So this woman called me. I still remember it so clearly. I was in the dark hallway of the house in Duluth. And she asked me if I, she said, we're going back to Portland. She didn't say, hi, Lisa, how are you? Because, you know, and I didn't even know how to talk on the phone, believe it or not. When I was 19, I would just call people and say something. I didn't know you're supposed to say hello. Anyway, um, she called me and said, hello, we're going back. We're going back to Portland. Would you like to come with us? You can pay one third of the gas in hotels and come in our station wagon with all of these kids, all of these kids. And, and I, 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 even then I knew well, that's not a good idea. I knew that that's, that's, that's not a, that's not a good deal for me. And so I hung up the phone and I knew I was leaving. I just knew I was leaving. I didn't even know I could leave till she said that. Hmm. And so then I like got a bus ticket and got the hell out of there, took a bus back to Portland. And did what? Floundered. Where did, where did you go? Oh, my God. Well, of course, I went to stay with my mother. So she was living in this house that was being remodeled, was being built, and they ran out of money. And so the house wasn't finished. So she was living in an unfinished basement that didn't have any heat except the oven. I don't know. It was weird. And uh, my sister lived there and had like a normal bedroom. She went to uh, Wilson High School, my youngest sister, Ramey, went to Wilson High School. Nobody thought about where Mindy was, the one two years younger than me. She was always gone. When she was 15, like she just, where, where she left. You go, where is my daughter living? Let's find out. No, we didn't even think of it. Oh, I don't know. Lynn, Mindy's living somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, it's like Running with Scissors, the book Running with Scissors. When I read that, I knew it was true. I knew it was like, mm. I lived that. Anyway, so I was there sleeping on the floor of... Um, my sister's bedroom, didn't have a job, didn't have any money, didn't have a car, didn't have a high school diploma. And um, one of the elders, um, Billy Carter, who has an amazing son, I mean, really amazing young man from what I see on Facebook. Um, he came, dropped me off after one of the MOVES meetings and saw how I was living and invited me to come live with him. And so then I lived with them and I paid them $100 rent and I got a job Oh, working at a nursing home. So I just, oh, I just miserable, boring work. I worked in nursing homes. Then I finally got a retail job. So what I'm what I'm interested in is when when did it shift? When did you realize this wasn't this this overreaching control that was encompassing your life? When did you break free from it and become to be you? That's a, been a very gradual process, yeah. very gradual process for me. Um, I didn't know I had grown up in a cult until about 15 years ago. And I looked up the move of God one day and was like, oh, wow. And it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I had grown up in a cult, which it often does for people. Like I was uncomfortable with the term and it took me a while to use it. It took maybe it. a month or two. Yeah. yeah. Very, very normal. Um, and so then I started learning about cults. I didn't know anything about cults, really. And um, just because you experience it, you don't know what's happening to you. Um, and so then I started learning about it. And then I went to a free thought conference in Portland at PSU. 
I was on the board of the Center for Inquiry at the time. By the way, I've served on several nonprofit boards and founded a nonprofit. Nice. Very successful. Nice. Um, and I sat down. I was in such a good mood. I'd just come from a wonderful um, workshop on the history of uh, laws and religion. It was really cool. It was really it was, and it was way over attended. There was way too many people in the room. I, it was I had to be illegal, and so I went and plopped down at this table, and I was um, I tend to be a cheerful person, and so I sat down and said, "Hello, how are you guys today?" And this woman sitting next to me just looked down and said, fine. And I said, which workshop did you attend? And she said, I didn't. I just gave one. And she's looking down. And I said, which one? And she said, um, the one about medical neglect. And I said, oh, I was going to do yours, but I was afraid it would be sad. <laughs> and then the woman on the other side of me said, was it sad? And this woman goes, yes. So... Um, then we start talking about it. This woman is Rita Swan. She's a hero in the child abuse, medical neglect, cultic realm. She's an amazing woman. Um, she asked me to write um, an article for her newsletter, Child Inc., um, and she's just recently retired. And I wrote it, and I um, never knew who my sister was until I wrote that. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of the many things that made me understand my life better. My sister, Mindy, the one who died of a heroin overdose. How did it help you understand her? Because um, I never understood her growing up because she wasn't bad, but everyone said she was bad. Hmm. So she was so bad. She was so bad that we sent her off to Ware, Massachusetts, a place we'd never heard of, people we'd never met, where she was sexually abused by the leader Wassel motherfucker abused many, many little girls, and beaten regularly, um, treated horribly, neglected. She was there for three years from nine to 12. She came back with the worst case of scoliosis in the state of Oregon, 82%. It's so unbelievable that I went to get her medical records to prove this, and then I had to get her death certificate. I didn't know what her name was when she died, when she died, or what city, because we were estranged. And so just the whole process of writing about her life helped me understand so many things better. Her, When I was in my 20s, I would call every nonprofit around and say, does she have a choice? Because I kept being told, she's bad, she's choosing. She was a homeless prostitute at the time. And I would call, nobody could answer my question. My question was about resilience theory and free will. We have so much science about that now. No, she didn't have a choice. She could not. She could not. There was no way. She had no other options. But I didn't understand that at the time. Hmm. So it was one of the many things I came to understand because of writing this for Rita Swan. Yeah. I mean, anybody dealing with that amount of trauma, I don't know. You, you don't know what's right or wrong. But she didn't have point. any skills. She had been sexualized. Um, she, was, she hated herself. She was self-destructive. My mother really didn't love her. She was treated way worse than me. It's brutal. So what, what do you think, short of getting on the internet and finding resources somehow, what, what can anyone in that situation do? Somebody that's deeply embedded in some sort of religious institution like that, how do they get out? Some people do reach out to people in the cult awareness arena. 
Um, there is a um, there's a variety of listservs, Facebook groups, websites. There's tons of stuff out there. There are so many um, discussion groups that we won't even know our own friend has one. Seriously, yeah. I remember telling Ken Barber, "Do you know Paul Ryan has this great?" You know, because there's so much stuff out there, you just can't know about all of it. There are uh, workshops and seminars right here in Portland. There's a, there's a church on, I think it's 12th Street, where Pastor, what is his name? Ken, oh, I, can't, I can't think of his name. Great guy, wonderful guy. He was in a cult, and he does a lot of work to help educate. They have meetings for people who have been impacted by cults right there. When when it when it isn't COVID isn't raging, you can go in person. Yeah. Um, and there's lots and lots of stuff online. There's workshops. There's there's a huge conference coming up online. Sadly, this year, um, June of 2022. If you don't have money, just let them know. You can go for free. You can go online for free. And there's two tracks of workshops. There's so many. Um, I did a presentation at the International Cultic Studies Association's conference in Washington, D.C. in 2014. Um, and you meet people from all over the world who either work in the arena or are there to understand why their child is in a cult or why they grew up in a cult. And you're like thousands of attendees. Yeah. And then further on down the line, how do you, how do you stop it from happening? Do you have any idea how that Cults? Yeah. Well, there's lots of it. And, and it's like one of those things where I think you're taking little bites at it from all sides. Mm -hmm. So one example um, that Ashlyn Hilliard told me about in um, Arizona City, the Utah, the FLDS, that whole thing. Um, they, when a girl would escape, uh, leave, the police or somebody would call the parents and tell them where she was. They would come get it. Well, then they're going to make sure she doesn't leave again. Yeah, for sure. And so they, of course, would, among other things, put a tracker on her car sometimes. They still do that today. Take away her ID, her computer, her birth certificate, everything. It's really hard to get those replaced. So um, these wise people in the area um, passed a law that you have three days before you have to tell the parents where the girl is. And they have attorneys standing by. They're on call all the time. Nice. And they immediately file the paperwork to get the girl emancipated because they're usually underage. Yeah. And one of the reasons they leave usually is they're being forced to marry some old man. Yeah. You know, 15, 16, 17. And before people could get in trouble for parental interference or whatever. So then they, they'll escape and go to a house um, or they have called ahead which is what they do all the time. They call and say, please help me, I want to leave. And Ashlyn used to be one of the people who would help these usually girls leaving. And um, so then they would go, the now, they, the now they're told, get your ID, get your computer. Don't let anybody know where you're going. They have a whole plan. And so the, it's usually a girl or a woman leaving, and they um, are able to get her into a safe house and the paperwork filed so the parents can't come get her. Nice. That's a huge solution because before the girls almost always went back. Yeah. There's lots and lots and lots of solutions. We just have to have the political will. We have to want it as a society. These, these people, these are American citizens. These are children. We owe them that. We need to pass legislation to protect these children and to care for them when they leave groups. I'm sorry for being so intense, but no, God damn it, it makes me mad. That is a fantastic way to end it. Um, 
So thank you very much for coming down and talking with me. That was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.